You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. It's a good one today. Who are we going to be talking to? We're going to be talking with Troy Pottinger. Now, if you don't know who Troy Pottinger is, the dude is a a slayer, a straight up slayer, and he's been slaying for several years, and the method in which he slays is why he is on this podcast today. He is what some would consider the master, or I don't know if you can be the inventor of a strategy per se, but the dude has been perfecting the mock scrape and hunting over scrapes and hunting over mock scrapes for decades now. And he does it in northern Ohio. Uh, northern Idaho, western north northwestern Montana, and northeastern Washington, right? And so when you think of that region of the country, you're not thinking about you know giant, big, mature bucks. But guess what he's doing? He's going into the mountains. He is scouting his balls off. He's using mock scrapes to get deer to get in front of a trail camera, and then he's patterning them for sometimes years. And then he's putting himself in position with all of the woodsmanship that he's learned throughout the years, and he's getting the job done. I think he uh, he holds the number two largest whitetail shot with a bow in Idaho, and he's dropped a couple Boone and Crockett deer in Idaho. And so I don't even have a Boone and Crockett deer in Iowa, and this guy's doing it in places where there's not supposed to be any big deer. But the dude uh, is a straight killer, and today you're going to learn all about his his method, how he um, found out about scrapes, how he started testing this theory that was in his head, all the way to how he uses it in in his his yearly strategy, along with uh, how he runs trail cameras over these scrapes, and and, uh, it is very interesting, and uh, it's making me want to go out and learn this process and perfect it and uh, refine it in the areas that I hunt. And so this last weekend, I went out to one of my main farms and I shot, um, I shot, I hung trail cameras. And the cool thing about it is that my number one, number one, in, within 24 hours, my number one hitless buck uh, from last year showed up and on on the main farm and so i'm really excited to put the pieces of the puzzle together and try to get a pattern of where he's moving how he's moving and hopefully identify him the thing that i am starting to mess around with this year and this is why troy is on the podcast is mock scrapes and so i set up two mock scrapes in front of tree stands 
and I think I probably probably did them a little wrong. Um, I have I don't think they're in the best possible position after listening to Troy, so I I, I might either have to move them or move a tree stand uh, per se, so that they are uh, in this triangle that you'll hear him talk about. But I'm really, uh, uh, I used orbital gland. I didn't necessarily use any uh, scent on the ground. I made the, I made the big scrape. Uh, I didn't pee in it. I didn't use any synthetics or anything like that. But I did hang um, a rope with the orbital gland substance that you smear on the rope. And I, I believe uh, I used uh, one of the partners here is Code Blue Sense. So they sent me some, what they call the Rope-A-Dope. And that is a, a mock scrape system that you hang from the tree and you use the orbital, the orbital scent. And I'm really looking forward to messing around with all of that stuff uh, this year and, and seeing what just what attacks it or, you know, are deer using it? How do our deer coming downwind of it? How do they approach the scrape? I, you know, I ask all these questions in today's episode. And so this wasn't even about putting out content. This was me just wanting to learn more about the strategy behind mock scrapes and what that entails and the history of mock scrapes is through, you know, through um, Troy's learning curve, I guess you would say. So uh, it's just a fun episode. I know if you guys are serious, I know you'll like it. Um, before we get into today's episode, though, I'm going to do some commercials. I'm going I'm to do a real quick. Real, uh, if you're looking for a saddle, now is the time to buy. Now is the time to get practice. Now is the time to get mobile. Uh, TetheredNation.com. Go check out all of Tethered saddle, saddle hunting accessories, and climbing sticks. And they have a ton of information uh, that's going to make you a better uh, make you a better saddle hunter. Next on the list, Wasp Archery. Man, uh, I talked about this in the Hunting Gear podcast, how much I love that that company. I love the people that work there. Solid heads, man. I mean, just the um, most of their heads are made in America from some of the best and strongest materials that you can get to make broadheads. And so that, along with my confidence that I have in them, it's a no-brainer for me to keep using them. Discount code 20% off NFC20 for uh, wasp broadheads next on the list i got an email today of some new products coming out in september that i'll be talking about uh but until then go to vortexoptics.com check out all of the um spotting scopes binoculars rifle scopes red dots uh you range finders if, if it is an optic they make it and uh, check out the the vortex gear uh, clothing line as well pretty cool code blue sense i already told you uh, i'm going to be using the the rope-a-dope system this year along with some of the other you know the the standard laundry detergents and de- deodorants uh, um, maybe some scent sprays i i don't necessarily use scent sprays too much but you know if they're going to send me a box of it i, I might as well use it uh, code blue uh, has a discount code nfc20 as well and that's going to get you 20 percent off uh woodman's pal i used the shit out of that this weekend uh hacking vines clearing uh shrubs and sticks uh trying to put my trail cameras in the right position so that a they weren't i wasn't getting a ton of pictures of wind that in the help of a weed eater I, I cleaned out my mineral sites. I cleaned out some areas uh, that I needed uh, to be cleaned out. And the Woodman's Pal 
uh, really, uh, really helped out. So go check that out. The uh, company's been around since 1941, I believe, and it's a Made in America product. Uh, and it is by far one of the most durable and uh, hardest working habitat tools that you're, you're going to find. And last but not least, Huntworth. Uh, I'm really looking forward to working with these guys this year. I got a box full of their stuff. I've already tried it on. Uh, the saying with Huntworth is 80% of the functionality compared to some of the elite brands. So uh, uh, quality, I should say, 80% quality for 50% of the price. And so if you can't afford you know, one jacket for $500, you need to go check out Huntworth because their clothing is really comparable at a much more affordable price. Uh, so go check out HuntworthGear.com. And that's the that's the that's the commercials for today. Hopefully you guys enjoy this. Please go to iTunes, leave me a five star review on Nine Finger Chronicles or the Sportsman's Empire. Uh, really appreciate if you did that. Do me a favor if you want a special guest or you yourself want to have an interesting story to tell and want to be a guest. Do me a favor, reach out to me through Instagram. Let me know who you want to talk about, what you want to talk about, or if it's you. Tell me the story that you want to share on the podcast, and I'll, I'll make that happen. Other than that, man, it's all about the good vibes this time of year. So uh, let's get into today's episode with Troy Pottinger. Three, two, one. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm excited for this one. This guy's uh, been around the block a time or two, and uh, uh, I asked a couple uh, good friends of mine, who are also in the podcast game, I said, hey, I want to talk to someone who knows a lot about mock scrapes. And both of them said that uh, Troy Pottinger is the man when it comes to mock scrapes. So here we are. Troy, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Yeah, that's that's a nice compliment, Dan. And thank you for having me. I've I've watched your stuff from afar for quite a while. So perfect. I'm excited to be up with you and Talk about what I've spent my life doing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So before we get into this mock scrape discussion, I want to talk a little bit about where you live and where you actually hunt whitetails because, you know, I say to someone, name some good places to go whitetail hunting. They're not going to say Northern Ohio, uh, Northern Idaho. Uh, right. And, no. and so no. talk to us, <laughs> talk to us about the region and the states that you hunt and why you like hunting whitetails up there. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, well, first of all, I'm a native. This is where I was born and raised. I am uh, 53 years old. To, I'm 53 year old, 53 year old native Idahoan that's only lived in Idaho and Montana okay. in his lifetime. So geographically, I live in a really cool area, uh, especially for a hunter. I, I live up in the narrow panhandle up near Canada in northern Idaho, but I can literally jump in my truck and drive 45 minutes east or west to an hour max, and I'm either in Montana, eastern Washington, or if I drive an hour, I'm in Canada. Okay. So... I've got all these different state and provincial opportunities all around me and the habitats very similar in all the aforementioned states and, and the provinces are BCs above me, but yeah. Alberta's not far. 
Alberta's just a little jaunt, jaunt over. Yep. But I've got really great whitetail habitat uh, if if you're talking mountain habitat. And I live in the mountains. Okay. Uh, I live in the mountains, Dan, and I live in logging country. Very, very lush. We get a lot of rain out here. Uh, we're Pacific time zone, so we get a lot of rain off the Pacific Ocean. All that to say, very dense, lush, steep, rugged, big-time elevation change country that can hold whitetails. Uh, they can live and die of old age, even with our long rifle seasons. And it's a it's millions of acres of public land. Okay. So, so for me, Dan the handcuffs are always off when it comes to if I'll do the work, the access is available. If I'm willing to go travel and get into these big forests. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when you're sitting there, you're describing the ecosystem that these deer uh, live in. You said the words lush and you said the word like wet. And when you have those two things that tells me that the soil is probably okay too to get the minerals from the dirt into the deer. And yeah. that also allows deer to be, uh, and I'm just guessing bigger bodied and good antler size. Yeah. And when you add in that boreal effect of being a high latitude on a, you know, we're up near Canada. Yep. Cold, cold as hell in the winter. Mm-hmm. I get three feet of snow in my front yard every year, up to five feet, three feet for sure. Our deer have evolved and passed on favorable big body genes so they can make it through the winters. And then let me add this to the equation. Our river valleys and river bottoms that set at like 1500 feet roughly. And then our mountains climb up to seven, 8,000 feet. Our bottoms are full of some of the best, agricultural and fertile soil in the west yeah yeah so it's a pretty freaking wicked combination for a whitetail to exist in to survive in and it's it's so vast and so big and so heavily vegetated that i mean i've heard guys say north idaho whitetail and elk hunting is one of the toughest places to do it just because it's so nasty and steep but it allows these deer to get some age even on public yeah yeah, and yeah. and and the other thing I want to talk to you about real quick is the fact that you're hunting whitetails in the west. In the areas that you hunt, are whitetails overshadowed by let's say mule deer or elk? Are they, do they come in third or are they up there at number 1? It's a great question. I think I'm a good candidate for you to ask cuz I've lived here for 5 decades. Yeah. Um when I was young, Dan, a whitetail was considered a second, third-class citizen okay. in the world of hunting. Right. It, it's changed because we have quality. Um, and again, this isn't Iowa or Illinois either. Mm-hmm. But it's it's solid. I don't know if you know much about me, but I have killed some really nice whitetails in this country. Yeah. Um, and I'm talking Boone and Crockett gross bucks. Yep. Uh, there, there, there. You, this country can grow it, but yeah. yes, white tails were always a, I'll say, third class citizen when I was young. Mm-hmm. Then they kind of moved up to second class, and then the world of social media and whitetail hunting. You know, I was a mountain whitetail buck hunter before that term was even 
ever coined ever. Yeah. Um, I, I was bow hunting mountain whitetails 30 years ago, which was never even, nobody even knew anything about that or talked about it. It wasn't even written about in, in publications. Yeah. So the world has bumped it up a little bit to where I would say the elk out here are still the most sought after by the general public. Mm-hmm. But whitetails have gained a lot of traction because they're, because whitetails are everywhere. Yep. And we have ample seasons to get to hunt them in. And if you do your work, really work hard in this country, even on public, you can usually turn up a mature buck. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing that I've noticed. In Iowa, obviously, there's no elk, there's no mule deer. We have we have turkey and we have deer, pretty much. I mean, that's yep. that's it. And so whitetails are number one, period. Illinois, whitetails, yep. number one. Wisconsin, whitetails, yep. number one, and so forth and so on. Out there, I've noticed, the, and this is cool, especially when I go to chase mule deer in South Dakota. Out west, once you once you hit a certain point in the United States, the focus comes off the whitetail just a bit, and it goes yeah. to other species. and And correct me if I'm wrong, that allows for them to be overlooked and them to get to a bigger size and to have maybe additional opportunities for a guy who just really likes to hunt whitetails. Yeah, I think there's some merit to that, but there's also that flip side that there is there's especially when i was younger Mm -hmm. they were a little bit overlooked and everybody in the panhandle up here and eastern washington western montana everybody did their thanksgiving rifle hunt and got their buck that's just kind of how it worked yep it has changed though um whitetails have gained a lot of traction now People are very privy to all the information that's out there nowadays. Uh, so it it's swinging to where whitetails receive a lot more pressure nowadays than yeah. they ever have in this country. And, and let me be fair, two-month-long rifle season, yeah. right through the middle of the rut, and I have the highest amount of apex predators, the top predators in the world, in my three states i can name them all grizzlies mountain lions an abundance of mountain lions grizzlies uh wolves everywhere bobcats coyotes all that are on the lower end of the food chain out here so what ends up happening dan is between our weather our harsh conditions the mountains got their own ways just like they said it in the old jeremiah johnson movie it's true and then you add in all the apex predators and then you throw in two months of rifle season during the heart of the rut, the whitetails do take a beating. Oh, but, but you flip back to the vastness, the habitat, the cover, a few of them, a few good ones are going to make it every year. Uh, I've hunted Iowa. I've hunted Ohio. I've hunted North Dakota. I've hunted Alberta. I've hunted Oklahoma. I've seen it all, and I've experienced it all you're not going to see a lot of deer out here on a set in the big mountains. It's very low deer density, Yeah. but you might, if, if you do your research and do your due diligence, do your work, you might kill a five-year-old or six-year-old deer yeah. if you do your work. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Did that help? I mean, did yeah. that explain it? Absolutely did. Yeah. Absolutely did. 
Okay. Uh, so now we, we've kind of got the environment, you know, where, where you're using this environment. And I think the fact that, uh, let me ask you a question. Can you bait deer in Washington, Idaho, or Montana? Only Washington. And I grew up in Idaho. Okay. All right. So I'm like me knowing what I know, I'm starting to put the pieces of the puzzle together as far as why mock scrapes are potentially such a game changer out, out there where you're at. So talk to me a little bit about when you started experimenting with mock scrapes and then the initial reaction that you got from, from applying that to the the countryside. It's a great question. And Rarely does anybody ever put those pieces together and get that. But yeah, my mock scrape, my biological background study of whitetails is because I lit, grew up in a state where no baiting was allowed. Yeah. And I had to hunt big woods, mountain country, low deer densities, wanted to kill a buck with a bow, even when I was in my teens, just wanted to do it. Yep. No bait and no feed, no feed at all. So I was like, well, well, what, what am I going to use from a biological standpoint to get a whitetail out in the middle of the mountains that has food everywhere, has bedding for hundreds of miles? What am I going to get to use to get him to frequent me in the daylight, especially when he's not rutting? Mm-hmm. And, and my archery season opens in 15 days. So I was archery hunting from August 30th till December 24th. And I always archery hunted, even growing up through rifle season, because I wanted to bow hunt. All that to say, Dan, the the scrape is what I knew would be my ticket, even when I was younger. And how I figured that out, and I figured it out on my own, my dad was an elk hunter and a mule deer hunter, and he got killed young when I was in high school. Okay. So I kind of just got, I just dove into this by myself in high school, and my dad got killed. My dad was a logger, okay. and I lost him young. Okay. So it really played a pivotal point in me having to figure shit out by myself. Not and just really in hunting, but in life in general. But in life. Yeah. yeah. I had to grow up. I had to take care of my mom, my little brother, and we were great. We we made it and we did well, but it was hard. Yeah. Um, but the whitetails always were my happy place. Okay. Even when I was a teen. And Dan, I was uh I loved shed hunting as a kid. Uh, we lived on a ranch. We had cattle. We had a little 50-acre piece. I had whitetails on it. And I tell this story, and this is what really got me interested in scrapes. When I was either 11 or 12 years old, I would look out my kitchen window at our little 50-acre ranch out in the mountains of northern Idaho, and I would watch bucks in the summer in the velvet walk out on one of our meadow, field meadow lines where the cows, the cow pasture line of our timber and i didn't know it then knowing now what i what i know now we had a community scrape that was built by the deer on our property that i could see from our kitchen window okay so so i'm 11 or 12 years old in those ages and i'm watching deer in the summer while i'm getting ready to you know go fishing or whatever early in the morning up with my mom and dad before dad was gone and I would watch them walk out and hit licking branches. And then I start shed hunting like crazy in the springs. And I find really nice sheds back in the day before shed hunting was popular. Mm-hmm. And I used to pick up shed antlers. This will all make sense. It'll answer your question. 
I used to pick up shed antlers because I could sell them and buy extra extra school clothes and fancier stuff. And my dad, you know, my parents were great, but dad was like, you want all that fancy shit? You can go earn some money. <laughs> so anyway, but the best thing that happened to me, Dan, as I was hiking mountains year round, I was watching deer and I was finding these scrapes out in the mountains, even in the spring with deer tracks in them. Okay. And I was at least privy enough when I was young to go, I know they use them in the summer and fall at our place because I watched the deer do it. And when I started hunting them at, a, at 12 years old, I hunted where I knew scrapes were because I knew deer would come by and check them. I didn't know anything more about it. Yeah. I just knew they would go to those spots. And then in the spring, when I'm picking up sheds, I start finding great big scrapes on the ground that, yeah, they might have some pine needles in them, but in the spring they had foot tracks in them, yeah. fresh. Yeah. So I started thinking, these damn deer use these year-round. Yeah. How can I apply this to my whitetail hunting? So very rudimentarily, you know, really very basic when I was a teen, I just started targeting scrapes that I would find in the spring. I would target those in the fall. Gotcha. And I noticed that when I got inside the big timber, it, we have vast timber, hundreds of miles of it. Yep. As far as you can see, you see a timber. I mean, it's just our mountains are not bare. They're just covered in timber. Yep. I started noticing, Dan, in my teens, I killed a buck every year of my life when I was young by myself. And they weren't, you know, from spikes to two points to threes, you know, two-year-olds, one-year-olds. I didn't care when I was young, when I was young. But I was killing these bucks sitting by a tree off the edge of a scrape. Mm -hmm. And when October and November rolled around, I was seeing nicer bucks show up at some scrapes. Now, back then, I didn't know that I wasn't always at the best community scrape. Right. Right. So what I started doing, Dan, is I started as a middle to late teen, I started taking a Ziploc bag with me. And when a scrape would get pissed in heavy in November, I would take my mom's little garden shovel with me in my pack, take a Ziploc bag, literally scrape the freshly peed in dirt into a Ziploc bag and transfer it to a scrape five miles away. I was adding deer to that scrape, Dan, as a late teenager and in my early 20s before I even knew that I could buy scents. Yep. I was transferring deer yeah, and I was eliciting more response from the local deer that I added the deer to. Okay. So then I started transferring licking branches. I just cut a piece of the licking branch off and zip tie it five miles away. Okay. And what was the, what and was the reaction that you got out of, out of doing that initially? I started killing my bucks first or second hunt. I wasn't picky as a middle teen to late teen to even in my college years, I wasn't, I got pickier as I got into college. I got started getting picky Yeah, because I was figuring shit out and I was doing all this transfer and it was working. Oh, and every deer I ever killed, or even if my buddies would kill a deer, I would dissect the bladder, take a syringe and pull all the urine out, freeze it, and then use it at another scrape. <laughs> wow. So I was doing all this stuff late teens early 20s but started learning about it when i was very young 12 13 14 years old i just 
always tried to pay close attention to the woods yeah. and what the, what the woods was showing me. And I was a shed hunting machine. I mean, I was picking up 50 to 100 sheds every year and making back in those days when I was a kid in the 80s, making 500 to to $1,000 to spend on school clothes. I was rich, you know. Yeah. I was like a rich kid. Yeah. And I was and I was picking and Dan understand too I'm picking up elk sheds. Yeah. So I'm picking up elk deer, I'm learning the mule deer, I'm picking up mule deer sheds. I'm learning about all the animals doing this. Yeah. Well, my scrape game started way back when I was transferring actual branches and dirt yeah. out of ziplocs. Yeah. And it worked. I started killing shit, started killing my bucks Dan the first or second hunt every year. Yeah. And so you had you had a bit of a aha moment, I take it, where you're just like... When I was, yeah. Yeah, real young. Okay, so a yeah. lot of times when you're that young, the brain doesn't know how to process it, what you've learned into applying it somewhere else. When, how old were you roughly when you had this aha moment and then you started to be like, man, if I really focus on this strategy... I can do some special things with it. I know exactly when it was. I uh, I was always fascinated with science. And on all of my tests, I would always score extremely high in science. Mm -hmm. And I love biology. So my sophomore year of high school, I had who was probably still, and I'm going to say his name, he's passed away. I probably had who's known as the best biology, zoology teacher in the history of St. Mary's, Idaho. Sam Cummings. And I had Sam Cummings as a sophomore for my zoology teacher. And Sam allowed me to dive into what I loved, which was whitetails. And he allowed me to completely take a whitetail deer skeleton, break it all down, put it all together, study all the biology of a whitetail. And that was my semester project. Oh, so I awesome. had this full size body. I had this full-size body whitetail, every bone, the antlers, the head, every bone, the skeleton suspended on a frame, and that was my project. Well, I had to learn and teach the whole class about a whitetail. Okay. And I had to teach them about the biology of a whitetail. So when I start doing all this real research as a sophomore in high school and start reading about the biological tendencies of a whitetail and then thinking, holy shit, I see this in the woods. Yeah, I've experienced this and I didn't even realize it. I would say my sophomore year of high school, it really came together because I was able to take the scientific side of it, the true biology of it, and combined it with what I had seen with boots on the ground and just stumbling across things and killing deer it all came together my sophomore year really well. And then, then I just dove into the science of whitetails yeah. from my sophomore year on. Like, I purposely chose my profession, my job, everything so I could hunt whitetails so I would have time to scout. Yeah. Yeah. Even I was thinking about this shit as a high schooler. Like, yeah. what am I going to do for a profession? And I was a football player, Dan, so football took a lot of my fall time. Mm -hmm. And college got paid for through football. And I, and, my, and I lost my dad at 17, and we were broke. Yeah. So I had to pay for college with a football scholarship, or I wasn't going. Yeah. So it just all – and then I studied biology and kinesiology in college on purpose. So it just kept building and building. And when I walked in the woods 
during those years, even my college years, everything made more sense. Yeah. Because I understood the biological nature of everything also. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And so, you know, you have this extra layer of knowledge that is assisting you in finding success uh, out in the woods. But you can read a book, you can, you yep. can dissect a deer, yep. and you can know yep. everything about an animal, but killing them over the, you know like over the this scrape I, i'm i'm guessing took some like being able to apply that uh this scrape hunting tactic i i'm sure it wasn't just like a single year and you went out and you, you started slaying giants i mean talk to us a little bit about no. maybe the learning curve that you had to go through to have turn this idea into a a a, a rock solid strategy right and I didn't slay giants. Yeah. I, growing up, I killed the young dumb deer mm-hmm. that made mistakes. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that then. I know it now. Yeah. But as I got older, and when my dad when my dad passed, I I had to figure everything out on my own from then on. Yeah. Plus survive life and survive that. So, whitetails were my solace. Were my, were my place I could go. And, just be happy. Yeah. So I dove into it and I started getting like a little bit jealous of the guys that were killing big bucks. And I don't mean jealous towards them personally. I was like, why am I not seeing these kind of deer? Mm -hmm. Why am I not finding these kind of deer? I got to figure this out. So I turned that little bit of like, and I would say this was in my late teens, early 20s. I just made a decision that I'm done bow, I'm done rifle hunting altogether. I'm going to put the rifle down. And this was in my college years. I said, I'm done. And I'm going to force myself to figure out a way to kill a big white tail buck in close because then I knew I'd really be doing something yeah. in these mountains. So I didn't just tackle figuring out how to try to kill a, say a, four-year-old deer older even a three and a half i said i'm only going to do it with a bow right so i just said screw it i'm going all in and what i started realizing dan in those years is i didn't know shit about wind or thermals okay or how to end or how to enter and exit a beautiful scrape that i found and i didn't have that in my game plan arsenal until my 20s and then i really started focusing on Troy, how are you going to get in? How are you going to get out? How are you going to hunt this scrape without deer ever knowing that you were there? So that's what I really worked hard on in my 20s. And I started killing older, bigger bucks. Okay. You know, and I'm sitting in my basement right now. You guys can't see this, but there's a wall right in front of me of bucks that I killed back in the 90s that I didn't even have the money to even consider a head mount. But that's when I started killing. I'm looking at four and a half, five and a half, even maybe a six-year-old up there. I started killing those deer when I started dialing my entrance and exits into these locations. That's when I started seeing good deer. Okay. And big time minimizing my intrusion. I didn't have trail cameras. I was literally checking tracks. I I am a – I mean, I spent so many – I got to bounce back to this. 
hundreds of hours shed hunting every year mm-hmm. hiking country all my buddies are out playing summer league softball and on the river and the and on a boat i'd be out in 80 90 degree weather freaking hiking into may and june mm-hmm. because i loved it picking up sheds and i'm telling you the sheds led me to well i've got like 12 or 13 maybe 14 kills in my house where a shed led me to killing him and, and that's a whole different rabbit yeah of how that works with with timing of shedding in the mountains but anyway i really started focus on entry exit being able to set up and not ruin my awesome scrape that was working in the daylight now i didn't have cameras yet but i was seeing deer when i hunted those spots Mm -hmm. even without trail cameras but the tracks were always there and the scrapes were always tore up gotcha now were these at that at that point, were these scrapes that you found and brought new deer into, or were were you creating your own scrapes at that point and own linking branches? Right. I I talked about earlier when I was younger of moving some dirt mm-hmm. and just throwing it in a scrape. Yep. Because I thought, man, if I add more deer, they're gonna be curious. Yep. I did I did figure that out. And it worked. <laughs> yeah. And then I did move some licking branches, but I was just using existing scrapes to answer your question. Yeah. In those in those early to mid 20 years, that's when I started. That's when I first started taking a, a licking branch from an awesome scrape. Literally, I would screw it into a tree somewhere else or strap it on. I still do that to this day. Mm-hmm. I don't screw anything in anymore because I don't like making noise in the woods. So I'll strap them on. Um but I was taking existing community scrape licking branches, moving them. Then, yeah, I would dig the dirt out. And I'll be honest, Dan, I'd just pee in them. Or yeah. save, I would freeze every deer bladder urine that I could extract every year from any of my friends' deer. So I would usually have five to ten bottles of different deer, does and bucks of friends that I had saved the urine from. And sometimes it was only two or three a year I could get to. It was always mine, my brother's. I would take it all and freeze it and use it the next year. Mm-hmm. I'd just throw it in the freezer for the whole season and use it the next year and put it in the scrape. So that was my very first mock scrapes before the word mock scrape even existed. Okay. Mock scrape wasn't even a word back then. Yeah, I believe it. And so I, it wasn't in the, it it was not in the late eighties, early nineties. We nobody used that word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking now about all like the outdoor life, North American whitetail articles that I read, and I can't remember anybody talking about mock scrapes ever. No, no, no. And and Dan, I'm like you. I grew up on North American whitetail. I had a subscription. The stack was always next to my bed through high school, college, and I still got them all over here, you know? So I'm right with you. Yeah. And and I'm older than you. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So you're getting, you're, you're starting to get it. All right. I'm starting to. Yeah. Yeah. When did you start saying, cause I, I'm, I'm seeing this line of evolution of how you're using mock scrapes. When did you start to say this would be an awesome location for a mock scrape because I can get to it really easy. And, and when did you start saying, 
I'm putting a mock scrape here. I'm going to I'm gonna doctor everything up from scratch. As soon as I got out of college. Okay. As soon as as soon as I got out of college, I played college football in Montana for five years. It took up all my time. As soon as I got out of college, I had a plan. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna devote my life to bow hunting whitetails in the mountains of Idaho, Washington, Montana. And I'm going to kill big bucks, and I'm not going to have to use bait because I can't do it in Idaho or Montana. Washington, I can't. Mm-hmm. In the, so that was 1993. First teaching job. First, I was first teaching job, first coaching job. Uh, you know, greatest shape of my life, young, super fit, put in so many miles that year because I didn't have a football schedule to adhere to. And, uh, I mean, playing, I didn't have that year round training stuff I had to do. So I started, I just started scouting and I made a goal in the early nineties, 93 from then on, I was always trying to get at least 200 to 250 partial days, even if it meant two hours of a day in the woods, that was my goal. And I marked it on a calendar out of the 365 days a year. Okay. So I was always shooting for 200 to 250. Yeah. When you're out there spending that much time by yourself in the mountains because you love whitetails and you just want to learn how to be good at it and you want to get consistent, everything starts coming together. And I started thinking in those years, I started killing in those years, 94, 95, 96, 97, I'm looking at the deer up here that were killed in those years. I was really thinking about why can't I put these deer that are down on this scrape in a bottom where the wind swirls, why can't I move them up on this ridge 150, 200 yards away and have a great wind? That's what I started thinking. I can get to this ridge. I can sit on this ridge. I'll get a true prevailing. I'll get a true up and down thermal versus sitting in the bottom where the bucks had an awesome and does had an awesome community scrape, but the wind always swirled. So in the, we'll say mid-90s, I started dialing location, moving scrapes, building mocks. Uh, another huge, huge change for me was I got in Andre's stands. I got in a stand, Andre DeQuisto stands. I started buying lone wolves in the old days because they were the only freaking stand in the world that wouldn't make noise. Yeah. And... My deer are crackheads because of the predators out here. So you can't use a steel stand out here and be consistently consist, or you can't be consistently a killer of mature deer in a stand that creaks. Right. So once I got into Andre's tree stands in the mid nineties and started putting deer where I wanted them favorable to my entrance exit. And I would say wind. I was getting that figured out. Then I started shooting four-year-olds five-year-olds now let me add this just fair to the listeners i was hunting a more target-rich environment back then than i do now because everybody hunts now everybody's a bow hunter uh we have our population in idaho is freaking quadrupled the deer numbers are different now for mature bucks yeah i was in some really good deer back in the 90s before the population explosion of Idaho. Yeah. Yeah. So I started I started locating them and putting deer where I wanted them with the mocks, yes. Yeah. Back then. Okay. 
Yep. And was and, it was yep. it something that like did it just did it just work or did you was there a learning curve on where to place them as well? Oh man, I struggled sometimes. Yeah. Um Man, I can remember back where maybe one because I still didn't truly understand the big, big picture of wind and thermals, but right. I was trying. Right. Uh, you know, and we didn't have a weather app to tell us which way the w- prevailing wind was that day. You had to go to the mountains and feel it. Yep. Yep. So I remember like putting out, maybe I'd put out five scrapes for a season in a big drainage. Back then, I would say one of them would turn up and work well. But guess what I did when that one would work? I would say, how is this different? I'm always questioning everything. Yep. So I started asking myself, how is this one working so well? And why are these other ones not working when they're only six, seven, eight hundred yards away of each other? And then that started teaching me through the 90s that I also had to be set up where a mature buck felt comfortable traveling and not just the young deer yeah. in the daylight. Yeah. In the daylight. Yeah. And if I'd have had trail cameras back then, Dan, here's what I would have saw. Lots of nighttime pictures. Yeah. On a lot of them. And the fact that maybe I was putting my hands on too much stuff back then. Letting my human odor get on too many things. I started curtailing all of that through the 90s. Okay. I got real strict with my human scent as far as uh, touching anything in the woods when you build a mock scrape and you want the biggest, baddest buck in your area to hunt you, to come to you, do you really want to put your human scent on it? Hell no. Right. If he checks it one time out here with my human scent, an old buck, still to this day, an old mountain buck out here checks a scrape, and if my human scent's in it, he will avoid it in the daylight. Even if the other deer use it, he'll check the other deer, he'll work the other deer, but he'll do it at night. Yeah. Yeah. So that started all coming to fruition through the 90s, and I started dialing it in. Then I started knocking down. Nobody was killing the deer I was killing in, in the west, out north. Nobody with a bow, yeah. what I was doing in the 90s. People people thought I, were, I was cheating. Yeah, I believe it. People made, sto- people made stories up that I was cheating at something or shooting them with a rifle. There's no freaking way he's killing these deer with a bow, yeah. and I was. And it was awesome. And yeah. I was, oh, I was happy. <laughs> I bet it felt good. And I was, oh, frick, it was so awesome because I was the only guy in, out there hunting out of a tree stand. I was hunting out of a lone wolf. I had a couple of them. Yep. Uh, I was moving them around and putting them on great scrapes. And I was killing deer from August 30th to December 24th on my licking branches. It didn't always have to be during the heavy, dirt scraping, urinating phase of the scrape. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's all starting to uh, to work for you. Um, this is before trail cameras, all right. So let me. The question I have is: Did you go out before you started hunting these scrapes? Did you go out to check the availability of these scrapes before you hunted them, just to say it's going to be worth it if I come here? Yeah, I checked tracks and I would brush them out. I would uh, sweep them with a, I would break a big fir bough, like a real pretty Christmas tree. Yep. I would break a bough off so I wouldn't touch the scrape. 
and I would sweep the dirt. And then I'd come back two or three days later after I peed in them or after a lot of it was me dumping. I didn't pee in them a lot, but I always tell people the truth. I never lie. I'm very transparent. I never saw myself spook deer with peeing. Yeah. But what I was doing, Dan, was saving that urine back then. And I'm going to get to 1997 and talk about when I changed the synthetics. Okay. Um, but, but, but before trail cams, before synthetics that made it easier for me, I was sweeping the scrapes with that branch and I could see every track in it when I come back to check perfectly and I could judge the tracks on size. Okay. And I was sweeping the trails and I was sweeping the trails that came to the scrape. If there was two or three and if they were pounded to the dirt, I would sweep them back 20 yards at least because I wanted to know where, when I saw that big track in the scrape, I wanted to see what trail he preferred to come in on. Yeah. And sometimes it really worked, man. Like I could see he really liked this. And then I was learning about my wind issues. Then understand through this time, I had a lot of deer blow at me and, and blow me out. So yeah. I was really starting to pay attention to the wind even in the off season or even when I was scouting, or even if I knew I was going to hunt a couple days later, I started thinking, okay, big track in the scrape. He's been here, big trap track down this South trail, but not the North trail or the West trail. So he's coming in and that makes sense. Cause there was a North wind the last three days. Yeah. So it just started all. And, and I was piecing it together the best I could with big tracks and how the wind was working at those scrapes. Yeah. And then I was always trying to hunt off to the edge of that sucker always trying to set up off to the edge of where he wanted to favorably travel. Yeah. And I was killing, I started killing some damn nice deer. Yeah. So you're basically setting a, a sign trap for them, right? Even if they didn't, let's say lay a scrape, you're sweeping back and you're saying something, something has been here since the last time I was here. Because I can see, yep. I, I cleaned everything. Yep. Okay. I cleaned and overmarked with urine. Yep. yep. I didn't have forehead gland back then. Didn't yeah. have it. Yeah. I used to sprinkle, and people say, you're crazy, but I used to sprinkle the urine on the licking branch because I didn't have any for. I didn't even know how to get forehead gland. Yeah. yeah. I would just sprinkle the scent in there, and I never seemed to, I never felt like, I was running deer off. Right. They were all over that frozen deer urine, even from a year before. Understand, I never let it get hot. I never let it rot. I would freeze it, let it let it thaw, put some of it out and refreeze it. I was always keeping it frozen in my, you know, just at the house refrigerator, keeping it froze. And, and then and then I started seeing the older age class bucks in the daylight yeah. in the nineties. Yeah. Man. This is this has got to feel really good as you're as you're going through this entire process. It's got to feel really good to have what you're doing work so well in this environment as far as your success rate, as far as knowing that deer are visiting these scrapes and, and just using it as an overall strategy. It was it was amazing. I thought I was uh... I wouldn't say nothing to anybody. I wouldn't tell anybody anything. I would hear people talk about deer that were 20 years older than me, and I 
They didn't know, in my opinion, they didn't know shit. And they had a lot of misconceptions of conventional wisdom that was screwing them from hunting like they should be hunting, was my my thought. They bought into conventional wisdom only. And I thought, man, you got to think for yourself, because if you get out there and figure this stuff out, you're going to see things that people won't believe until you have proof. And then once video showed up, Dan, once video became a big part of our whitetail world, and mm-hmm. once trail cameras showed up, and once I started videoing bucks doing what I've been doing for a decade on my trail cameras in the early 2000s, everybody sh- everybody was like, holy shit, he's not lying. Yeah. He's not joking. Yeah. These deer are doing exactly what he say they're doing on these scrapes, and they're not just doing it in October, November. Yeah. They're doing it from, they're doing it in July, August, September on the licking branch. But yeah. I saw that as a kid on my ranch. I yeah. witnessed that as a kid on my ranch when I was 12 years old. Yeah. 13 years old, 14 years old. So I just believed what the deer told me. I didn't believe right. whatever you, all the humans wanted to tell me how to hunt. Yeah. I believed what the deer showed me and I stuck to yeah. what the deer showed me. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's that right there, man, is woodsmanship at its finest. Right? Like, even me personally, I grew up like my first, I'm trying to think of when I got my first trail camera. I think I got my first trail camera in about 2007. I, so I, I did grow up without them, but trail cameras allowed me to do some crazy things as far as jumping up into the caliber of deer that I was chasing because it allowed me to say, oh, there's nothing here worth yep. going after. So yep. when you started to introduce trail cameras into this strategy, yeah. what did you what did you find? And then did that affect your the the success on older age class bigger antler deer? Probably one of the best questions I've ever been asked because it changed my life. Yeah. I could not believe what I was not seeing on the hoof Mm -hmm. that was actually there. I was like, holy shit. Yeah. I had no idea this deer existed. And the truth is, Dan, that big deer had me figured out. Yeah. And before trail cameras, Dan, I never knew it because I never saw him. Well, when trail cameras came in, I start seeing him at night. And I go, holy shit, now what am I doing wrong? Why am I only seeing him at night? And then I started making moves. And it changed my whole life. And then I started killing. Well, in 03, I killed a number two state, number two archery buck in the state of Idaho. You know? And it was because, it wasn't because of just a trail camera. I actually used the, oh, to be fair, I glassed a ton where I could. Where I could where it was yeah. applicable. So back in the track days, I was glassing also. When I right. added trail cameras in, Dan, it's what you said. You become really efficient because you don't waste time on inefficient or inefficient spots. Right. I started making moves. I just, yeah. you know, very aggressive. And that's kind of my personality. Like, I'm not going to sit around and hunt something that doesn't have what I want there. If it's not there, I'm moving. Right. Right. So I started moving. I, I think I got a lot more mobile. 
I started yeah. moving. I started looking. And then I also added in synthetics in the late 90s. I didn't have to do all the work and dissect bladders and scrape dirt out of scrapes and save it for a year. I started using synthetics and it blew me yeah. away how well it worked. Yeah. My bucks weren't afraid of it. They liked it. My deer thought it was a new deer. The synthetics and the trail cameras in the late 90s, I started killing the best bucks of my woods from then on. The best. Yeah. And yeah. that's, I'm, I'm doing the same now, Dan. I'm just much more polished and more strict and disciplined and more trusting in what I know works and won't work and don't waste my time. Yeah. How did, this is, you know, this, this is my, I, I just am starting this mock scrape adventure that I'm going on, right? This year, I've already put out two. Um, and it, it was less, it was less um, synthetic, like urine or urine in general. And it, and it has been more focused on orbital gland um, there. Take, take that out of the equation and just put in whatever scent you're working. Did rainfall impact how, let, let's say you went and you, you, you freshened up a scrape, you have a trail camera over it. Did it hit and hit and hit? And then the rain came, washed the scent away and it stopped hitting. Like did weather ever impact how much these deer were visiting these scrapes? My experience is weather will impact a mock more mm -hmm. so than a community because a natural true community scrape that you overmark, yep. the deer have been raised on their whole life. They're still coming yeah. back to it. Yeah. When you build mocks, and that's what I tell people all the time, when you build a mock, create a community scrape that when the deer get to it, they smell multiple deer in it and go, holy shit, how did I miss this? This isn't yeah. a single deer making this scrape because he's in a rut frenzy, those those scrapes will get abandoned all the time. Yeah. And a mock that's built like that, especially when it gets poured on and rained on and diluted, and the deer haven't been ingrained and teached or taught to use it over the generations, those are hard to keep going Yeah. if you're just doing one single deer profile. Yeah. I take multiple deer profiles to my mocks, it's like artwork for me. I lay out the area. I build mock rubs at it. I build this scrape that looks like it's been there for three decades. I put the correct scent, multiple deer profiles in the scrape so that when a deer finds it, they truly treat it. And I watch them on video, like especially those old bucks. How the hell did I miss this? They'll spend more time there scent checking it than any deer. The older yeah. bucks will. And yeah. it's because... They've lived their whole life there. And they want to know why there's multiple different deer in that scrape that they can't identify. Yeah. So I yeah. play that game. So when the rain comes, yes, especially on a brand new build. And if you're just doing one profile of a deer in it, one urine profile, one glandular profile, you just added one deer to that. That's all you did. Yeah. You put a deer there. Yeah. And when you and I, Back in the old days, we're chasing girls. Did you go where there was one girl multiple times, <laughs> or did you go where there was 50? 
multiple I times. went where there was 50. <laughs> and I'm telling you, biologically, males are males. And yeah. they go where the odds are better and where there's more, a higher number of females. And they also want to keep track of all the dudes that they might have to compete against. Yeah. Like they size each other up. You probably see it in Iowa big time. Those bucks mm -hmm. build a hierarchy. Oh, absolutely. And they check with scent big time at these scrapes. They check with scent not only, and this is biological here, but whitetail bucks and whitetail does can check any whitetail scent and they process it. And in their brain, it lets them know how healthy that deer is based on how that other deer uh, metabolizes protein. Okay. So every deer your Iowa bucks walk up on, say it's your target buck, he can scent check every deer in that area. And he can tell who the healthiest bucks are, the biggest competition is, or he can check where the healthiest does are and who's getting the closest. He keeps tabs on that at those scrapes. That's what those scrapes provide for him all at one shot. He doesn't have to go out and check every doe in her bed. Yeah. And that's why those community scrapes become so integral is because he can get all of that in 10 seconds yeah. and then get back and hide out. Yeah. So when you're dealing with this profile, you, you know, you mentioned this, it's almost like a, a, a Facebook, right? Where you have all these, all these profiles of deer. Yeah. How do you, how do you keep multiple deer profiles and, and keep them separate? Because when I think of synthetics, I think of a blend, blended yeah. natural, yeah. Or it's unnatural. Yeah. So it it's like a, it's less, it's less individual profile and more, uh, uh, recipe right it is uh, it, it, it's it's a copy it's a copy of a deer profile so what you do is you target and i target and i i've got stuff in my scrape mix that i keep to myself i mean it really right. works so i don't i mean what i really target is making sure that what i put on the ground doesn't have just one product in it and that if I were to put product A, B, C, D, E, and F, let's say I have six different items. And, and I'll just be honest, one of my best friends is a chemist, and we have been working on this for decades. And we really dive into this stuff. Um, it'd blow your mind if you knew what can be used to make synthetic urine. Anyway, if you can mimic different levels of testosterone, glandular secretions that mimic all of those, it comes across to these deer as different deer other than just one. Okay. So I play that game and it works and it works yeah. really good. Singular yeah. deer work. They do work and they work well in, I would say, most cases, but I've just had so much more success with multiple glands, multiple profiles, multiple biological stimulants. I play it all into that bottle and it works. And this is my own deal that I've created, yeah. that I've mixed. Yeah. Now, I will be very honest. My foundation, the foundation of what I use is the Buck Fever Synthetics. Yeah. 
and I love it. Right. That's my foundation. Okay. But I'm a tinker. I'm a tinker. I'm a tester. I'm a. I'm always testing new mixes and ratios, and it's been a blast because I feel like even every year now, I keep working on it. I keep getting yeah. more daylight responses out of my six, seven, eight-year-old bucks. Still okay. trying to always make it better. I've never been uh, satisfied, but I've been very happy with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I keep trying to get it to even work even better. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. So once you build a scrape or you find a scrape, whatever, you know, whether it's a, a made from scratch scrape, whether it's community scrape, whether it's one that you've found and you start right. uh, doctoring up. Um, right. What time of year have you seen through, I guess, just the number of years of hunting and the the number of trail camera pictures that you've had over these scrapes. When yeah, do you the video. start? Yeah. When do you start seeing a true uptick in deer visiting scrapes? So scrapes are very different in so many ways. There's there's communal scrapes that deer really come to, especially bucks that doe family groups pretty much keep going through the year there's community scrapes where if you draw circles on your maps where mature bucks always bed and always live almost always that overlap with doe family groups those work different there's scrapes and this is this is something i did that i just started doing on my own and said i'm going to try it i started taking the scrapes right at my mature bucks August 30th, I'll even say July, I'll even say June in their summer bedding areas and putting it right in their face and saying, I'm forcing you to smell this. Come check me. Mm -hmm. So I play a game of early season, what most people would consider non-scraping season, and I place these big community multiple profile scrapes right near a buck's bedding and i hunt those august 30th till about the end of september yeah and then i end up transitioning because the deer pivot and transition and start getting ready for that first doe that's going to come in in october and then i really target the overlapping think of the circles big buck bedding areas even in the mountains where they're keeping tabs usually higher in elevation of doe family groups, I target those big scrapes that overlap. Okay. And then in the heart of the rut, I will hunt my most true mother does, doe family group scrapes that the does live. They just happen to live quite a ways away from where most of the mature bucks feel safe. But I'll jump into those later in the season and it's based on historical data, too, of where bucks show up. Yeah. And those are scrapes that the does pretty much keep going through the year, the licking branches, and the bucks come in. They literally come in, camp out, make new bedding areas, service those doe family groups, and then they leave after three to five, six, seven days. Hmm. So I'm kind of hunting three different scrape strategies, if you will. Yeah. And... With that being said, Dan, I got to stay 
ahead of the bucks and not get behind them. Mm-hmm. And it's worked. Yeah. Do I go hunt the doe, basically doe family group kept community scrape early season? Hell no. My bucks are a mile away, 2,000 feet up in elevation, not want nothing to do with the does right now. And my bucks are hermit somewhere, living by, like the buck I'm going to try to kill in 15 days. Here's an excellent example. This is awesome. He's seven and a half this year. Can't believe he's made it this long. I've never hunted him on purpose. I've raised him. I've raised him since he was two and a half. I have five years of video and pictures. Unbelievable since he was two and a half. He has made it. I have raised him on two community scrapes that I built, mock communities, across the drainage, almost a mile across the drainage, and he bounces back and forth to both, and he beds where he's safest during different parts of the year and where most of the doe family groups are. So I've got five years of data on him. I know where he likes to hang August 30th, but I also know where he likes to move to in October because I have five years of history with him on these two scrapes. So this, this whole scrape game is, it's, it's to me way more than just going out, scratching the dirt, throwing some scent on and getting inventory, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, that's very fair. Uh, And, and I guess, you know, the, the more that you talk about this, the more that we see the the multiple layers that you're you're going through the the multiple steps the seriousness in in buck profiles like the average guy just is not doing that so is there a way to have success using mock scrapes in a average joe type of way to where I just say, uh, I'm going to scratch the dirt. I'm going to maybe hang a rope and use some orbital scent and I'm going to spray some synthetic uh, pee in the, in the scrape. Yeah, there is because I hunt the biggest country in the, in the world. I, I guarantee I hunt as big a country as anybody in the world for a whitetail. Yeah. When I hunt the other States, when I hunt Iowa, like where you're from, I absolutely love it because I can go out, I can look at a map, I can break down my buddy's 500 acres just like that. I mean, I really can take a look at it and go, I say to my buddy, Jay, can I hunt near this bedding area as long as I don't go in it? Sure, go ahead, Troy. You go out, you hang and hunt, but guess what I always build out in front of me as a scent wick? That's going to, and, I, and I'm on it. I'm, I'm using the wind to push the scent towards those big buck bedding areas on that 500 acre piece, which to me, 500 acres to me is, I know it's really big in Iowa, but Mm -hmm. to me, I really enjoy it because I'm not on 200,000 acres, you know? So anyway, yes, you go in, you build. Here's the key for everybody out there listening, your location, and you have to use that scrape and that scent like a trap, like you're a trapper. You're sending scent to a big buck's nose that you want to elicit a response from him in the daylight your human wind and scent can't get to it. So are you sharp enough to have some type of terrain feature, some type of wind thermal, some type of vacuum, some type of wind edge that you can be off just to the edge of it, but still send scent that's 
that scrape might be 30 yards from you, 25 yards. I like to shoot my scrapes. And I've done this in Iowa and Oklahoma very successfully. Killed two of the biggest bucks of my life. It's a long story. I don't want to go into that, but it's awesome. But I literally went out, put the scrape. The, the key is location and your ability to get off to the edge of it and not booger the deer and they'll be there. Yeah. But you use that, you use that scrape like a trap, like you're a trapper and you want him to come to just check it. But yeah. you got to play that wind and that layout and that location, right? Do I think that same scrape build would work way out on a field edge and get a great big buck to come out in the open in the daylight? Probably not. So Dan, I'm always di that location is key. I dive in. I, I dive in and I use the wind to put my scent where I need it to, and I hunt just off the edge of it. And I enter and exit just off the edge, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously you don't want to you don't want to be downwind. And you also want the, the whole point of a scrape is the scent. I mean, that's just how deer communicate. So you wouldn't that's, want yeah. your your scent overlapping with the scent of, of that. Um, I'm always, yep. I'm always off to the side. I'm always off to the side that I feel is the most favorable side to be off of based on where I think they're going to come from. Gotcha. All right. Now on, on, on usage of scrapes. I mean, in Iowa, my version of high and low is different than your version of high and low, right? We're talking yep. potentially thousands of feet difference to where you're at versus, you know, 15 feet 20 feet from where i'm at right. and so right. my question is have you noticed any type you know applying this strategy over the years have you noticed any type of um trends on how bucks or deer in general approach a scrape yeah and i've hunted so many different states my bucks out here are so I'm going to start with mine and then move towards the Midwest and what I've seen. Yeah. Yep. My bucks out here are so sketched out because of predators that they really live by their nose. And because our forests are so dense, they don't, they live by their eyes, but they really trust their ears and their nose. So they always come into my scrapes at least minimum with a 45 wind in their nose with at least okay. that. Okay. When I've hunted Oklahoma, and I'm going to use Oklahoma and Iowa, because then I'm in the south, and then I'm up in the Midwest. When I've hunted those states, I literally hunt those deer exactly like I do out here. I just love those states because, one, the deer are amazing. Two, there's more mature bucks. Three, I'm in a smaller fish pond. Mm -hmm. I love it. Because, man, I'm right there. You know, I'm in there with them. I know they're there. I've had a I've had better fortune in Oklahoma and Iowa with the Giants by coming pretty much straight from the wind that's blowing right to them. And I'm just okay. off to that edge. Like they just yeah. come. They just come marching to that new scrape. Now, I killed a 186 in Oklahoma in one and a half hours after I put my <laughs> scrape out at him. And my buddy didn't think it would. And my buddy that lived there told and my buddy's a hell of a whitetail hunter. He owns an outfitting business. He said, no effing way. And I texted him and said, dead. He goes, no freaking way. And, and here's what I did, Dan. I did my deal. I made my triangle. 
put my scrape out in front of me, sent the scent out of it straight to his bedding on 40 acres. He was in a 40 acre woodlot. I was, I set my stand off to the side as far as I could to shoot that scrape and my wind, I was watching it in my stand was just missing that 40 acre woodlot and blowing out into a meadow. Yeah. He, he came up through a tree belt under in cover right to my scrape because I placed it to where it would blow into that 40 acre woodlot. And I shot him. He even came inside of my scrape to get to it. And I shot him at 11 yards. He had no idea I was there. No clue. Hour and a half. Boom. Was there. I had to hang. I had to hang my stand. I had my lone wolf custom gear, my four sticks. I hung that. I built that scrape in five minutes and I doused it with my, with my set, my mix. And I had that buck there in an hour and a half. Iowa, biggest deer I've ever seen in my life. I only passed it because my buddies that owned the land really wanted to kill the deer. He hadn't seen him all season in the daylight. I asked my buddy, can I go into this spot? And I picked it off a map because of the dense Betty went in got on a little ridge in Iowa, Ringgold County, zone four, got on a little ridge, awesome little ridge you don't even see on Onyx, set up on the edge of the, the edge of the downwind side of the ridge, put the scrape 45 from me out in front of me to a 45, 30 yards away, built it in five minutes, the wind was blowing through there, and I knew it was going to take that scent down into that bedding. I'm up above higher in elevation and off to the edge just enough where I was watching my wind. And I always carry the little thistle, the little thistle, or the little uh, milkweed. Thistle weed. Yeah. I just yeah. pick it out here yeah. at my place. I got thistles in my fields. So I had the thistle weed and I was watching it out of my stand dump down behind me in that draw. And there was a crick in the draw behind me. I am not joking. In three hours, I had the buck he hadn't seen all season in the daylight, eight yards from me, and I shot the other buck so I wouldn't kill my buddy's 190. Yeah. And I and my buddy killed that deer later and was very thankful that I didn't shoot him because he really wanted him. Yeah. And it was 192 deer. And I had that deer wow. at eight yards for 15 to 20 minutes. In there, yeah. checking my – I shot my buck. Dan, this is not a joke. I shot the other buck that was with him because I had snort wheezed at him at a different scrape down in the bottom and they came to mine and they both came to it. I shot my buck that was just under 150. The big buck took his antlers and hammered the side of my buck laying there on the ground. <laughs> I could have shot that big buck 30 times over yeah. a 20 minute period. But the whole point was, Dan, taking that same thing I do out here trapping whitetails, using scent to blow to their nose, right location, nailed the setups with the wind just off the edge wind of them. Boom, boom, right there, both of those giant deer. They were yeah. there and one, the other, I could have a 192 on my wall too, but I was trying to be a good guy and not kill my buddy's favorite deer. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. So, when you go into, you know, you being a mobile hunter, um, are you making fresh scrapes every time that you go out? Or are you just getting into position on an already established scrape? 
Great question. I'm I'm a big time mobile hunter when I go out of state and hunt small parcels. And to me, a small parcel is thousand acres or less. Yeah. All mobile. Always build a scrape in my. I won't hunt a spot ever. I just don't hunt spots. Unless I'd say the only place I might hunt a spot without a scrape and not worry about it would be August 25th in Alberta on an alfalfa field. And I'm back in the timber a little bit because I glass bucks coming out in the alfalfa every day. You know, that's yeah. about the only place I'm probably not going to build. When I'm being mobile, when I'm in ground and country that I know I'm going to be mobile in every day, I'm always going to build and throw that scent because that's one more stimulant to get the buck I want to kill anyway to come yeah. through in the daylight. Yeah. Now, let me let me be fair. Out here in the big, huge, mountainous country, giant country, I want my community scrapes working for me year-round. I told, I said it earlier, I raise my deer on my scrapes out here. I mm -hmm. get them so comfortable by not hunting them till they're five, six, or seven that they get so comfortable, and I see this in my historical data and videos, and I run, I run a shitload of video, 30 seconds to a minute on purpose. Yeah. I learn everything I can about every deer I'm going to kill. And I yeah. always hunt specific deer out here. So, Dan, out here, to be fair, I'm running stuff conditioning deer year-round on community scrapes that have presets. And then I use my mobile out here when it's not working for me and I got to move closer to their bed, then I get mobile. So I'm, I'm more of a hybrid hunter out here. But, yep. boy, when I'm in the Midwest, Dan, when I'm in true Midwest Whitetail country that's the best of the best. Always throw a build in, always moving around, getting in the right spot. Yes. I hope that answered it. Yeah, it did. It did. Um, one thing that, you know, obviously the focus is on big mature bucks, but big mature bucks come the rut have one thing on their mind, and that's to breed, right? Yep. And so there's there's few questions coming out of this. One is, we've talked about the bucks, but what what are the does doing on these on these mock scrapes that you're building? Yeah, and earlier I I talked about those kind of three different types of scrapes I hunt. Yep. My doe family group locations where the does just flat out live there year round, pretty much, unless they have to migrate for a couple months in the winter, they always come back to them. Yep. My does. My doe family groups, and I know all those girls, and they do it everywhere I go, I see it. Even in the mid, everywhere I go, I see the same thing. When I get in and hunt, and I really hunt this hard during the rut, these kind of spots, my does keep my scrapes running. And they're laying down that ultra valuable scent for when the bucks show up and camp out on them to take to cover them. Yeah. So I dive into that kind of hunting because my does have done the work for me for a year. They do it all year long and they train their babies to know those scrapes and it'll be multiple doe groups on a community scrape. Yeah. And, and I'm jumping all over those, Dan, and those are traditional great rut locations in my opinion. Yeah. When, when the bucks are cruising and when your target buck might be five miles away, but you've got limited locations to get to hunt, Troy Pottinger's sitting on awesome doe groups, 
because I know what they're pulling and I know what they're going to pull. They're going to pull some of the best bucks in the area. And I'm also going to have like a guy like you, I'm going to have all the historical data saved on my does because a does photo period is always within a day or two every year at the same time based on daylight length. So a doe comes into heat every year within a day or two of the same day every year. Every mature buck in that area knows that. Yeah. That's why you'll get specific bucks showing up, Dan, on certain does every damn year at the same time, the same window. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, that's a, it's so valuable to, to have those doe-kept community scrapes that maybe don't always house or have a big mature buck bedding close all the time until the, yeah. rut, until the rut gets close. Yeah. The other question comes from within the first five minutes of the conversation that we had, and that was the amount of predators that are in, in the area. You mentioned grizzlies, you mentioned uh, mountain lions, you know, I'm sure there's black bears up there. And then you got your standard coyotes and bobcats. You forgot you wolf packs. Oh, wolf pack. Yes, wolf packs. That's what I was talking about. Wolves are horrible. Yeah. And they're smart, right? Yeah. So, and the reason I say horrible is they horribly move your deer. Yeah. There's nothing that scares a whitetail buck more than freaking eight wolves after his ass. Yeah. He usually doesn't make it. Yeah, I believe it. So that that warrants the question. All this extra scent that you're putting out in the woods, yep. predators have noses too. Do they yep. become privy to, to this as well? Yeah, and what I see is, and I, I've seen this for years, even before video with tracks. I can I will never get away from a mountain lion or a wolf pack, or a coyote, or both of my bear species, and I have tons of black bears and some grizzlies, I will never, ever be able to avoid them using their nose and scent checking a scrape. And they do. They'll walk by it, and they'll put their nose down on video and walk through. Coyotes will stop and pee in them sometimes. Um, my wolves are so highly pressured in Idaho because we can shoot – unlimited amounts a year what wolves usually do dan is they come into a drainage and hunt for about a week and then they bail okay. so that'll wreck me for like three weeks usually and then my deer will get back to normal because my deer like living there usually you know that's kind of how it works but you're that's a great question i cannot get away from it but my deer still adhere to and really need those scrapes to communicate and to function and to find each other, especially as the rut gets closer. So I have to deal with that. Um, mm -hmm. You'll probably laugh here, but I've climbed out of tree stands before and ran bears off. I've climbed out of tree stands before and ran the moose off. Moose love yeah. to scrape. Yeah. I've climbed, I, mountain lions are unbelievable. They're, they're so freaking smart and careful. Lions are usually once or twice a month for me, Max, on a camera. Yeah. It's almost like they know if I'm within a mile of them in the woods. Like, I swear to God, they hear your truck come into the mountains and they go to the next drainage. Yeah. And this is why, Dan, they get hunted by dog hound hunters. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm always dealing with it, yeah. which leads to a good 
which leads to a good topic. I never put all my eggs in one basket or I'm screwed. I'm screwed. Yep. I have to be able to bounce and hunt a different buck that's killable. And a lot of times it's because predators screw up my setup for a while. Yeah. How do you know when to abandon a scrape and say, it's just not providing me with any information? When my does won't use it. Okay. If, if my does won't, and I always at least have one or two does, even when I get right up in a big hermit bucks bedding area, it's it's awesome, but a doe will come and find my scrape if she's within scent distance of the scrape. So I usually always have at least one or two mature does in a scrape. But if yeah. I don't have any does at all, mm-hmm. only in the early season, if, if I've got a big buck I want to kill and I have no does at all, but the big buck's still checking it, hell yeah, I'm going to mm-hmm. hunt it. Yeah. But I yeah. usually abandon them, Dan, if I don't have does that will at least check it and use it once or twice a week in the daylight for okay. me. Right. Now, again, fair to your listeners, vast country, low deer density. Right, right. Is there, so I go out, uh, you know, I, I don't have the experience that you have. I, I want to go out and I want to try this. Let's say a guy's listening to this. He's like, you know what? Troy Pottinger has convinced me to go out and start applying mock scrapes to my hunting strategy. What are some things that he should not ever do? Never, never, number one, do not get sloppy with your human odor. Do not put it on the licking branches. You will fool young deer. You will fool some does. You will not fool the old does, and you will not fool the old bucks if your human odor is all over in that licking branch. Mm -hmm. They still may be on your camera, but I'll put money on it. It's at night most of the time. Human scent on the licking branch. Keep it off. I wear I wear latex gloves. They're cheap. Go to the go to the drugstore. Buy a box of them. Okay. So latex gloves. I, I used to laugh at myself twenty years ago, thinking if somebody ever saw me out here in knee high rubber boots and <laughs> fucking latex gloves on in the I middle of the mountains building a scrape, they'd think I was a complete freaking idiot. They Murderer. would honestly probably they would have videoed <laughs> me and thought, "What the hell's this?" What the hell's this crackhead up to? You know, right? That's funny. But 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 it's <laughs> but it make you know it's it's a lab to me. It's yeah. a lab to me, and I don't want my human scent on it. So number one, no no, keep your human scent out of the scrape. Yeah. And this time of year, it's hot as hell when you're building. Yeah. I I, I purposely purposely use a just a great big long stick to dig everything out, and I keep my damn feet out of the scrape on purpose. That's just me. Yeah. And I keep my hands off the licking branch, my bare hands. Now, if I'm in a rush and I got to build one and I know there's a, you know, I just know I got to get it built. I'll spray my hands down with Vanishing Hunter, which I've used for 25 years, and I'll risk it if if I don't have latex gloves. But I usually always have them. Okay. Another big no-no. I don't build scrapes out in the open. Okay. I don't build stuff for, I don't build where I believe deer are fearful in the daylight. I build where deer feel really comfortable in the daylight. Okay. So you, when you say that, you just automatically nix field edge scrapes. Out here, which would be a meadow. Yeah. And, and I do hunt some, I do hunt some country where the mountains butt up against ag and it's awesome. It's phenomenal because you have ag at the bottom of the mountain. 
Um, but I still go up into the mountain. That big buck I killed this year, I raised on a scrape for three years. Mm-hmm. He was five and a half. He grew up on my scrape. Actually, two and a half, three and a half, four and a half, four years, up to five and a half. He was two and a half when I first got him. I was a good, true three quarters to a mile deep off the field edge up on the mountain on purpose so that I'd be real close to where he bedded. So I get off of all edges, all open field edges. Now in the woods, deep in the woods, I might have a little opening in there because I use that to steer deer away from my scent cone. Okay. So that's a, that's a great wind barrier. Yeah. So I might have a 20 yard opening in the middle of the mountain somewhere, but I got timber for miles. So when I say open, I mean like, yeah, wide open edges where deer are fearful of somebody, put it this way, if they can poach it with a gun from the from the road at night, I would never build a scrape there. Okay. If that's fair, that's a good way yeah. to, like, if it can be poached with a gun in the middle of the night, don't build it there. Get in the timber and protect your deer. Yeah. Okay. Keep them in the timber. Yeah, that- so I get in the timber. So stay away from those edges, those wide open edges. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. And then, and then number three, my huge no-no is I don't use any true protein-based scent at all because I'm a biology guy and my degrees in biology and kinesiology, anything natural that's biological, if you don't keep it frozen, it's going to rot, break down, proteins are going to change and it's going to stink. Okay. That's why Troy's a big, that's why I'm a big synthetic guy, Dan. Mm -hmm. It never rots. It never stinks. Yeah. Now, if you want to go to all the work and keeping it frozen, then then good for you and do it. Because I used to do that. Mm-hmm. I just try to be more efficient nowadays. And, and the Buck Fever Foundation of my product has made it amazingly efficient to where I don't have to worry about rot or stink. Yeah. yeah. Those are my top three. And then, yeah. Boom. How long does it take, just out of curiosity, how long does it take from the time a... Uh, a, a deer urine is is captured and refrigerated at a time that it's just no good anymore. If it's at room temperature at all for very long, Dan, the protein synthesis takes place and it starts breaking down immediately. Okay. And, and, and all you got to do, and I did this for years back in the 90s, I'd go to the stores, I'd buy all the all the name brand shit, I would bring them home, set them on my counter for a day, open the bottle, smell it. Set them on the counter for another day, open the bottle, smell it. Guess what it started doing instantly day by day? Mm-hmm. Started, it started smelling like an outhouse more and more day by day. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a, a freshness, even though it smells like, you know, Boy, quit. Sorry, Dan, my dogs are barking. Sorry. No, you're good. Sorry. Uh, even though even though it smells fresh, like it, it smells like pee, there's a freshness to fresh urine. And yeah. you're right. I mean, I've kept one in my truck overnight and tried to use it the next day. And back in the day when I was using like drag rags and things like that, um, you could you, you could definitely smell the difference. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. it's it's simple protein breakdown is all it is. It's yeah. going to break down if it's natural and. That's why I always froze. That's why I talked about I kept shit frozen back yep. in the day in the old days, instantly yep. back to the freezer every night, or it would ruin it. Yep. And 
if you've ever dissected a white-tailed deer's bladder, and I was very careful not to get any blood in it or anything, I used a syringe, I dissect out that urine, put it in a bottle and smell it. It's very fresh, very sweet, but always has a hint. The very first stage of all whitetail urine on the ground, human urine, deer urine, dog urine, cow urine, doesn't matter, immediately goes to the ammonia smell breakdown. The reason for that is to get into the air and send messages to animals of likeness or predators. They find that based on that little bit of ammonia smell. So never be afraid of that ammonia smell. You just don't want the outhouse rotten smell. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of yeah. sense. If you're well, sitting in a tree stand, Dan, I gotta say this. I'm sorry, but I gotta no, say good. this. Buck comes by, pisses in it. I used to do this all the time, man. I had a buck come by that was young. I still do it to this day sometimes. Young bucks come by, piss in it, sits for like, say I'm on an all day sit. Mm-hmm. Four to five hours later, or the next day for sure, when I go over there and refresh in that scrape, right before I put my stuff on it, I'll get down right next to it and smell it, and it'll have that little bit of ammonia breakdown smell. And that's that scent that really gets out in the woods to the other deer, to get them there. Then when they get close to it, then they process who it is. And and I've tested that on my hands and knees multiple times over the years, but it never smells rotten. It goes from that ammonia strong smell in a freshly peed in urine scrape, and then it just starts to get weaker as the days go by, but it yeah. never smells rotten like in a bottle. Yeah. Yeah. Man, very, very interesting things. And I, I feel like I am going to, like everything that you've described today seems to me like if you were, if you're a serious hunter especially on public land where you the ultimate goal is to get deer within shooting range right um yes no you know no baiting because i feel like baiting like a big pile of a food source right in front of you so concentrated has almost more negative effects to hunting than it does um than positive but this seems like a strategy that obviously it's worked for you but like serious guys need to start thinking about more. Yeah. And Dan, to be fair, I have some very serious whitetail buddies. Yep. And over the last, since we've become really good friends the last decade, my really serious whitetail friends that, that are freaking killers, they all do it now. They all, yeah. I've even had, and I'm not going to say any names, but I've had some extremely prominent whitetail killers in the world. Everybody yep. knows them. Yeah. And they'll say to me, Troy, not only did you make a believer out of me, I'm not only using your stuff, I'm killing shit over it. And it's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not Joe, and I, I'm not going to throw names out because I don't need to. Yeah. But I'm talking guys that 10 years ago would have told you sense are a waste of time. Yeah. And I, um, I used to I used to be that guy. But I think I think what happens here though is sense are a waste of time when not used properly i agree and and yeah. dan to be and to be fair sense or not they're a big waste of time if you contaminate it because you yeah. just told every freaking deer in your area that you're here screwing this area 
Yeah. Contamination is yeah, huge. Yeah, there's a deer here, but there's also a human or a predator here as there's well. There's a predator here hunting these deer here. Yeah. And that's exactly. how it comes across to them. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Well, Troy may to break this all down uh, for us. And I think this, this conversation that we've had is so important because I would say, let me know what your thoughts are, that right now is when guys should start getting out and, and laying down mock scrapes. Yeah, I, I'm going to kill the deer I'm going to try to kill in 15 days on his licking branch. Yeah. And he's seven and a half years old. And I have five and a half years of history with him. Yeah. And I raised him. I raised him to get comfortable in the daylight over the years. He's very comfortable at these two locations. Now, there's a lot that goes into that. I I rolled the dice huge to try to get him to this age. Yeah. They usually just don't make it to this age. Yeah. But But what has happened for me on him, Dan, is he's actually more comfortable and more daylight this year at seven and a half than he was at six and a half and at five and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Still going to be hard to kill. I mean, he's, I still have to do everything has to go my way or I won't see him. Right. Because right. I can't go in there. If the wind, I know where he's coming from. I got, you're going to laugh, but I got five cameras in there, three on video, everything yeah. set way back. Everything sets way back though, so I get big view of him coming and going. Yeah. So it's not right in his face. Yeah. Man, you got a head start on him. I mean, you know, like I don't know. Just imagine uh, just imagine a mountain lion using trail camera data. Like oh, that's, shit. that's pretty deadly. They they wouldn't yeah. even have they just sit there and wait. I mean, and that's ultimately what we're trying to do. So um very interesting conversation today troy man i really appreciate your time and i hope that uh the strategy pays off for this buck that you've been uh watching over the years and good luck this upcoming season man yeah thanks dan same to you and you know what's cool is killing a velvet buck on a licking branch on august 30th oh yeah absolutely <laughs> I, I i didn't even think about that i'm just like he could be velvet when you're oh, so he, you're he, going he, you're going in opening day Oh, uh, if 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 the wind will work for me, and I'm set up super cool, I, it's a hundred degrees out here this whole week. It's yeah. been ninety and a hundred for the last couple weeks. I have a creek that I cross forty yards from my stand that has a thermal vacuum that sucks my wind right down to it or right down the drainage, and every direction he comes in to drink in the creek is above me. So I've got the water, I've got the creek, I've got the native feed, I'm at 5,000 feet elevation, he's a hermit, I got one doe there right now, three mule deer, two whitetail bucks, he's been there for five years consistently since he was two and a half, living that kind of life, doing those things. Wow. Yeah, he's uh, he's not going to know what hit him, man. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and and to be fair, Dan, he's a two to three daylight or a week is all. Two to three days a week max daylight, yeah. which is really good odds for me out here to having two or three days a week. Yeah. Daylight. Yep. Yeah. 
And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Huge shout out to Troy. Huge shout out to Tethered Wasp Vortex Code Blue Woodman's Pal and uh, the Huntworth. Yeah, Huntworth. That's right, uh, Huntworth. Uh, please go out and support the companies uh, that support this podcast. Please go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Leave me a five star review. Uh, and uh, last but not least, man, uh, there has been somebody that I really look up to in the hunting industry and the hunting community they suffer their family suffered a loss recently and i'll mention this again in in another podcast but i just want to say there are people out there who need positive energy right now and um if we can just all try to be a little bit more positive even when shit hits the fan i know it's hard to do sometimes i mean trust me i'm a father of three Uh, shit hits the fan every day and i try real hard uh to to remain positive throughout the course of the day even when i don't want to be but i do know that positive energy will help save situations it will make those around you better better people and when the world has better people in it it just becomes a better place so please be positive spread the positive energy and if you're going to be in a tree wear your damn safety harness